We're looking at Genesis 16 tonight, and it's a, the life of Abraham, I mean, when you read the New Testament, Abraham is the guy who's talked about as the model of faith, and uh, if, you, if you don't go back and read the story of Abraham, you might draw odd conclusions about what the life of faith looks like, because the story's just not what you would predict, and um, and one of the reasons he's talked about as the model of faith, is the father of God's people. The reason when we were kids, if you grew up in the church, we sang the song, um, Father Abraham had many sons, and we talked about how we were all Abraham's children, is because Abraham is the person with whom God begins his plan of salvation. He promises a child to Abraham, and through this child, Abraham was, uh, God was willing to bless the world. So this promised child... Um, this was the line of Jesus that was being spoken of in the thousands of years beforehand. And where we catch him in, in chapter 16 is they're old. It's been 10 years at least since God promised them this child. And, um, and there hasn't been a child. They're in their 80s at this point, and they're wondering what to do. But the story of Abraham really is really frames and directs God's plan of salvation from the beginning. And so... I know we're reading Old Testament and it feels like, who are these characters and what do they have to do with me? Well, in the story of Christianity, Abraham has everything to do with us. He frames his story, frames our story, begins our story. It's his child that we anticipate just as he does because it's through his child that the line of Jesus comes and that the king comes who saves the world. So, I'm going to read chapter 16. It's probably not a story that you think would be in the Bible, but here it goes. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, Sarah. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord's judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do with, your, do with her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress, submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered um, for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant, you shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, everybody's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was named Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you that it comes to us, and as it's odd and old, I pray that we would see now that you intend for us to learn from it, dear Lord, and as we contemplate 
um, disappointment. And as we contemplate what it looks like to wait in this life, to anticipate, to wish for good things, but never seem to have them, dear Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through the Scripture. We would learn and we would find that you are here. Be with us, God. Be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, a lot of y'all have met my girls. I have four little girls, two seven-year-olds and two five-year-olds. And uh, they've, they've, got a, they've been influenced by their mom in a lot of ways. And one of the coolest things, one of the coolest ways Elizabeth has influenced them is Elizabeth loves gardening, loves botany, knows flowers and plants and all that kind of stuff. I don't know what anything is. But the girls know what it all is. And in our garden in South Carolina, we had a bigger space there. And um, we had a lot of camellias. And the girls loved camellias. And in the spring when the camellias would start blooming, the buds would come up. And you could start to see the pink. We had pink and we had white. You could start to barely see the pink and the white petals coming out of the green buds. And the girls, like, unable to control themselves, would get so excited about it, they would go and start picking all the buds. And there were literally springs where we had no camellia blooms. And we just had dozens and dozens of green buds, like, all throughout the house. Just, just the bud, not even a stem or anything. Because the girls were just so excited at the flowers that were there. And uh, in the process, we lost our camellias. This is actually spring of 2010. It was a camellialist spring for the Wood household. Um, and I tell you that story to make this point. What we see in the girls is what we see in Abram is what I think we see in our lives, which is this. We want good things, and that's good. That's a really good thing. Um, but we want them on our own time. And we don't like waiting for them. We want good things, and God wants good things for us. The story of Genesis from one until now has been that God created creation, and it was good, and he longed for man to be happy in it and to receive and enjoy the good things. The problem is we don't like the way God thinks about what good things are and when they should come. And so in a lot of ways in life, we're like the girls, and we're grabbing things that we want before they're ready to be enjoyed appropriately, and we end up being actually really unhappy in the process. And that's what's going on with Abraham right here. And this is, you know, in some ways we don't see anything's wrong, anything wrong with this, and in some ways like this phenomenon of needing to have what we want immediately is no longer even like frowned upon in culture, right? Now actually what it is, I need something and I need it quickly, is now the impetus for innovation. It's actually what drives Silicon Valley, is it not? I mean, companies even produce products that are intentionally slower than what they have the technology for for the express purpose of knowing 12 months later you'll buy the same product again, that they'll attach a little S on the end of that product, and you'll pay $400 again for the same product, and it'll be faster, right? Because now you're getting your information faster, and now you bought two iPhones, right? They knew exactly what they were doing. But we want everything so fast, and we're in the heart of the place that is all about giving people everything fast. We want everything to be oriented around our plan for how it's going to come into our life, right? I mean, you can look at the food industry is probably the place where this starts, right? Fast food, all this kind of stuff. The fitness industry, what everybody's looking for is the quickest way to get their fitness goals, right? You can look at movies. Okay, this is a personal pet peeve of mine, and I'm a little bit self-righteous about this. But Quentin Tarantino is a beautiful filmmaker, and the opening sequence to Inglorious Bastards is amazing, but the opening scene is like 30 minutes long if you've ever watched the movie. 
but he builds this tone and he builds um, this anticipation and he builds this tension and it's incredible as the scene unfolds, but it's 30 minutes long, right? And nobody went to go see Inglorious Bastards in the theater because we can't appreciate good any art anymore. We all went to go see Transformers 2, right? Which is nauseating. You never understand what's going on, narrative-wise or visually. You can never... You don't know who the good robots are or the bad robots are. But we get explosions for two and a half hours and we walk out of the theater and we think we had a great time when in fact we didn't. We just got a little bit dumber. That's what happened, right? (laughs) We have no patience. We're not willing to wait for good things. And in fact, we're missing good things. And art, I think, is an area in which we're missing good art because we like the distraction of the explosions for two hours. And so we're financing and watching a lot of crap, right? Sorry. (laughs) Off the soapbox now. Go see Inglorious Bastards. Yes, you heard that at a campus ministry because it's amazing. Um, You know, I can go on and on. It's funny. The other day I called Mindy Jones, David Jones' wife, some of you all know, and uh, I was checking Twitter right before I called her, and somebody had tweeted about her, okay, sorry for this, about her CrossFit workout and how well she did. And I talked to her on the phone four minutes later. I was like, oh, I heard you got your handstand push-ups today. And she was like unnerved with the fact that I already knew her personal biographical information about the morning before she could even talk to me, you know? Information's flying at us, and we want it as fast as we can. And we're just voracious. We want to get all over the social networking sites, whatever it is. Um... You know, I'll stop right there, but I just want to illustrate this sense that we're trying to facilitate faster and faster ability to get what we want. And that might not always be a good thing. It's not always bad, but it might not always be a good thing. Um, We hate waiting for good things. This is Abram and Sarah in this passage, right? And in some ways, when we don't learn how to wait for good things, our experience of life is actually being cheapened. We're becoming more shallow and hollow and unhealthier friends in some ways and even unhealthier thinkers. In some ways, we've lost the wonder of waiting and stopping, right? And faith and waiting really go hand in hand. Waiting is a part of faith. Waiting enriches life. It gives wonder to life. And we find Abram and Sarah, just like us, waiting and waiting and finding that they want good things, but they're waiting for God to act. And they find the waiting intolerable. So what happens when we find that we can no longer wait? This is what happens. This is what Abram and Sarah do. They manufacture by their own means what they were waiting for. When we find that we can't wait anymore, when Abram and Sarah find that we can't wait for God's promise anymore, they begin to manufacture by their own means on their own time the things that actually God has promised them. And it all begins with the suspicion that God's not good. The beginning of our problems, this is the overall argument of Scripture, is this. The beginning of our problems start when we begin to suspect that God's not good. That's how it starts in the garden. That God's not going to live up to His promises. It begins with us doubting that He wants good things for us in good time. And I want to suggest that whether you're a Christian or not, that in in, in our lives... The primary problem is this, that we are in fact made for good things, but we don't trust God to be good to us. And so what we do is we mimic and manufacture a mimicry of good things. And we hold on to that and hope it works and it never never seems to happen. So the first point is this. 
Waiting is intolerable, and what we do instead, instead of waiting on the Lord, is we begin to mimic and manufacture what only God can give us. This is Sarah. She's frustrated. Abram's wife had borne him no children. We learn later in the text it had been ten years. Uh, earlier in the text, it had been ten years. She's frustrated with God's timing. She's frustrated with His means, right? This is the promised child, the one through whom the world is going to be blessed. This was their salvation. They knew that. They're in their 80s. I mean, they've been waiting for 10 years, right? This is how bad we are at waiting, right? She's been waiting for a decade, a decade for a promise. Tomorrow, for those of y'all who are as pathetic as me, you know that it's National Signing Day, which is the day when a bunch of grown men in the United States panic about what 17-year-old guys are going to do next year. It's when they all make their commitments to college. Okay, the phone calls start at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. I know this. I will wake up early for this and watch it on ESPNU. In fact, I probably won't sleep very well tonight. That's how pathetic I am at waiting, right? You're waiting for the end of the quarter. You're waiting for the end of the spring quarter. You're waiting for summer. You're waiting for the end of college. You're waiting for all kinds of different things, and it's intolerable, right? Sarah's been waiting a decade. So what does she do? She takes it upon herself to get what she wants, to get what only God can provide for, what God had promised for. And in some regard, we kind of even say, have to say, like, okay, she was actually pretty patient. A decade is a long time, a lot longer than we've waited for anything, right? And so she pursues her own means, and what she does is she does what's completely culturally acceptable, what's the custom at the time, right? She takes her cues from culture, and she says, this is how we'll produce an heir. I'll send my Egyptian servant and I'll have my husband sleep with her. And that's how we'll fulfill God's promises. She takes it upon herself to mimic God's promises, to manufacture something that only God can provide. Now, what does this look like in our lives? It can look like a thousand different things. In some ways, all of our stories are very different. But here's an easy one. Friendship, right? Fellowship and friendship come together when two people or a group of people have a common love, have one thing that they love together, right? And the richest friendships are held together by the highest love, the most compelling loves. But this is the frustrating thing about friendship. It takes time, it takes commitment, it actually takes humility, and it takes love to get into rich friendship. And so what we do instead is our friendships are held together on the surface, right? Because we're afraid of being known, we're afraid of, uh, we're, we're impatient with the lengthy and also the costly process of really knowing somebody. And so what we do is we have a lot of acquaintances that we have a really good time with, but we don't have anybody to cry with. We want friendship, friendship is good, we're made for it, and we're impatient with the process of it, and so we mimic it. And so this is what we do, this is what do we do. We talk about college football, we talk about computer science, we talk about our career aspirations, Right? And those are good mediums, and you need to talk about those things. But we never know each other because deep friendship and rich friendship is messy, takes humility, takes trust. And we don't have time for that, even though we long for it. A question that I ask, many of y'all ask people all the time when I'm just trying to get to know them. I just say, who would you call if your parents died in a car accident? And you know what? A lot of people don't have an answer to that question. And it reveals in all of us that, like, 
listen, let's just have acquaintances that we're good friends with and we can laugh about some comic topics over, but real friendship is too hard. So we mimic it, right? We don't trust God. We don't trust His process. We don't trust that brothers and sisters in Christ is a place where we can find rich fellowship. And so we mimic it. Something else, boldness. Just the simple concept of boldness. We're socially terrified, right? What takes the edge off? What allows us to mimic social confidence? Don't hear what I'm not saying right here. I'm not saying alcohol is bad, but what I am saying is a lot of times we engage in drunkenness because it makes us feel okay socially, right? It gives us a little brief moment of confidence. We feel okay in a setting, right? It's a mimicry of confidence. It's not real confidence. We know because it chemically wears off and you lose all that confidence the next morning, right? God's vision of confidence is that it comes from the gospel. And it's a confidence that's uniquely blended with humility. The gospel actually says, you're a son or a daughter of the king. And that gives confidence because if it's true, if what the Bible says is true, that we are saved and we are adopted into God's family and that you're a son or daughter of the king then who freaking cares what anybody else thinks? That gives empowering confidence when God the Father says, I'm your father, I'm the king. You're a son of the king, you're a daughter of the king. But you see, it actually, interestingly enough, gives you confidence and humility at the same time because you're adopted into his family, not because you're a great person, but in spite of all your ineptitude. So all of a sudden, you're a son of the king, you're a daughter of the king, but you're there simply because of his good favor, not because you're a great person. Right? The path to true confidence, it takes repentance, it takes faith, and it's much more difficult than simply getting drunk. You know, you can get drunk and you can feel confident and socially at ease for a while. So we mimic confidence, right? Here's the hard one, the really hard one. Sexuality, right? Oh, you're the Christian meme about sex, right? I feel the same way. Um, look, if you read Scripture with any sophistication at all. Um, God is a huge fan of sex. Um, he made it. The first thing He tells man in the Bible is to have lots of it. It's actually God's first words to mankind. And He wants people really, really to enjoy it. He describes it in very, very graphic ways and about how good it should be. And just like everything in life, it's best enjoyed in a certain way. And those parameters are put in place not to diminish the joy of sex, but actually to improve the joy of sex, right? So he places places sexuality and all its expressions into the context of monogamous marriage. And the reason why is this. I'm going to be blunt here for a second. Because great sex is way more than one individual having an orgasm. That's cheap. That's a mimicry. Great sex is deep physical intimacy and union with the person who knows you deeply and powerfully emotionally, who knows you deeply socially, who knows you deeply spiritually, who knows you deeply socially, who's seen all of who you are and all the facets of who you are as a human, all those different parts of you, and not simply sees you and knows all of that, but says, I love and I'm committed to all of that. I love it and I'm actually committed to all of that. Okay, that's where great sex happens. Great sex is way more than just one person happening to have a physical reaction. Right? But we don't trust God's pattern for sex. So we mimic it. So we jump to the seemingly satisfying end 
And we don't have the patience for relating to somebody. We don't have the relation, the patience for committing to somebody, for knowing somebody. We think God is actually out to deny us sexual pleasure. We doubt His goodness. And so in our impatience, we pursue immature, basically a facsimile of the real thing, with people we're not married to, maybe just with fantasies in our minds, maybe just with a computer screen. And what's happening is it's breaking us as people. This isn't the Christians that are saying this anymore. Everybody's saying this now and recognizing this that the way we engage in sexuality is breaking our ability to relate with each other because we're connecting intimately and ripping apart and connecting intimately and ripping apart over and over again, and the connectors actually start to break down, right? It's dehumanizing us. It's making healthy marriage seem impossible, right? Sexuality outside of the covenant is breaking down the culture, outside the covenant of marriage. It confuses our humanity. And the reason why we engage in it is because we don't trust God. We're just going to mimic it ahead of time because we don't like His timing or His design. Boldness, sexuality, friendships, spiritual vibrancy. Right? If you are a Christian or you're struggling to feel the presence of God, whatever that looks like, right? You don't feel it right now and you, you think, well, you know... And you've read, God's promised His presence. And maybe at one point in time, you did have really strong feelings about who He was as God the Father, as Jesus' Son, the Holy Spirit. And we get frustrated with the times when we don't have that strong feeling, that strong sense again, right? And I want to make this point. If you think God is any less present because the musical stylings of the songs or because of the lighting in the room, then you have no idea who the biblical God is. Do you see how foolish that is? That, oh, God's only present when we sing old songs. God's only present when we sing contemporary songs. Do you see how limiting a view that is of His presence? In fact, when you read Scripture, God actually says, I am most penetratingly present in three areas. They're really interesting three areas, and we're not going to talk about them, but it's where he says in the New Testament he's most powerfully present. When his word is preached faithfully, the sacraments, here's the really odd one, and church discipline. Read the New Testament. See where he talks about, this is when I'm powerfully present with my people. It's actually in those things. He never talks about the way the music is arranged. Right? But this is what happens. We don't feel God present, and so what do we do? We create an atmosphere where we can manufacture a feeling for a while. And we rely on that. Until we find that we're dependent on the particular musical stylings, and God can't really show up unless those particular musical stylings and that lighting pattern is present. I'm not saying anything's better or worse than anything else. I'm saying it's a problem if we think God only shows up with old songs or new songs. What we've done is we've tried to mimic his presence. We've tried to falsify a spiritual experience. Because we don't want to wait for God. And we don't like his timing. Sanctification. Another one. We don't like how God grows people, so we want to fake it, right? It's lengthy, it takes decades, it takes the deep work of seeing into your heart and seeing and grappling with who you are. It takes good friendships, it takes fellowship. It takes all these things to grow into holiness, but you know what we're really good at doing? We're really good at changing our behavior on the outside without changing our hearts. And we'd rather mimic growing into holiness and growing as people than actually do the hard, decades-long work 
of repentance and finding out where our hearts really lie. Right? Here's my point. We don't like God's timing. We don't trust that He wants to give us the good things that we do want and are good to have. So we mimic them. And we manufacture them. And this is the second point. And when we do that, it actually breaks down our humanity and it breaks down our relationships. That's what happens in the story, right? Sarah and Abram were impatient. She says, Behold, now the Lord's prevented me from bearing the children. Go into my servant. That's how I'm going to do it. That's how I'm going to mimic. That's how I'm going to manufacture God's promises. Go into my servant that I shall obtain children by her. And in the biggest understatement of Scripture, Abram, listen to the voice of Sarah. She's like, I have this young, hot Egyptian wife, uh, young, hot Egyptian servant. Will you go sleep with her? And Abram's like, listen, I just want to be the husband that honors your request, you know, and, uh, and always does, you know. We're going to look at Sarah first before we get to Abram. Sarah puts her plan in action. She's a schemer. She looks at the cultural cues for what's right to do. This is a common custom at the time. This is what culture gives her. You have your servant produce an heir for you through your husband, right? You know? And um, look what happens next. When she schemes, when she manufactures God's plans on her own. He went into Hagar, she conceived. When she saw that she conceived, she looked on contempt with Sarah. This is Hagar looking at Sarah. And Sarah blows up. May the wrong done to me be on you, Abraham. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord's between you and me. She gets angry at everybody else. I mean, you feel the tension and the frustration here, right? This was Sarah's plan, not Abram's. This was Sarah's plan. She gets her husband to sleep with servant, asks her husband to do it. She blows up at everybody else. When we mimic the promises of God when we try to manufacture the good things of God on our own because we're impatient, we actually end up being angry with everybody else. And each of these characters, I think we actually all identify on different levels with what's going on, right? I mean, how can, you know, they didn't have marriage counselors back then, but at the same time, we're reading it today, and it's like, how can you not see this being a train wreck on the front end, right? A wife asks her husband to impregnate the slave girl in their house, and the wife gets angry. And then she lays the blame at everybody else's feet, right? Relationships are disintegrating because of what she did, because she tried to mimic God's blessings, God's promises. And when this is what's happening right now, a lot of us are thinking, oh, I can't really identify with Sarah in that regard. I'm not that inconsistent, right? Let me just simply point this out. This is true of all of us, me included. In your day-to-day interaction... When conflict arises between you and somebody else, roommates, friends, parents, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is, who do you normally find to be at fault? Think about the conflicts you've had. Who do you find normally is the person at fault, right? Everybody else, right? In all of our conflicts, who's at fault? Not me, everybody else, my roommate, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, my parents, right? The source of our unhappiness, we believe, is primarily lays at the feet of everyone else. You know? And this is what you might be thinking right now. No, I get what's your point, but you don't understand. My situation really is, it really is because of my parents. It really is because of my roommate. And you have a story that demonstrates how it really is their fault. And here's the frustrating thing that none of us believes. They all have a story that demonstrates it really is your fault. And they feel that it's your fault just as strongly as you feel that it's their fault. Right? 
and you see the conclusion is, we're all really just like Sarah. We're all really blaming everybody else. And relationships break down. Right? Then there's Abram. So there's angry Sarah who blames everybody else. There's Abram. He's the lazy coward. That's what he is. We become cowards. He's not the willing, sacrificial servant husband. He's a pervert. That's what he is. He knows the law of God, and he chooses not to stand up for it. He knows that it is one wife and one flesh, and he abdicates responsibility. He follows. He's lazy. He's a pervert. He chooses not to stand up. And then his wife gets angry, and notice what he does. Abram says to Sarah, Your servant is in your power. Do to, you, do to her as you please. Hagar is carrying his child. He doesn't even stick up for his child. He says, do with her whatever you want. Do you see the kind of cowardice present in Abram? Right? This is what happens when we take our cues from culture. Right? For our decisions. When whatever everyone else is doing, well, we find it, maybe it pushes back against God's law or His design for how we're intended to live, but it's what everybody else is doing. Right? And so we justify it that, that way. And that's the act of the coward. That's what it is. And it's in all of us. And cowardice always hurts people. It brings pain into Hagar's life. It brings pain in the life of his child. They're actually run off. Right? Here's a simple area where that's present. Truth-telling. You know? We all have a line. We all have a place where we'll stop telling the truth because we have these justifications for why... Listen, in culture, it's acceptable to not tell the truth in this particular instance, Right? It's, it's okay to not tell the truth because it's going to hurt someone deeply, you know? So all of a sudden, we like the idea of truth-telling, but when it gets to a point where there are going to be negative consequences that are going to suffer, when you're going to be unpopular because of it, when someone else is going to be hurt, where you don't want to be known as somebody as being insensitive, all of a sudden, well, truth-telling, there's an appropriate time not to be engaged in that exercise, you know? And that's where we're cowards is right there. Uh, on campus, I mean, there's abuse, there's victimization, there's, there's simple loneliness that's happening everywhere here. There's addiction that happens everywhere here. And we're afraid to jump into other people's lives. Because it's messy and it's hard. This is what Edmund Burke said, I'll say this and move on. All that's necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Right? All that's necessary for the triumph of loneliness at Stanford is for good men not to move toward lonely people and good women not to move toward lonely people. Right? So there's angry Sarah, there's the coward Abram, and then there's Hagar, the spiteful victim. She's abused, she's objectified, she's a slave who's treated in an abusive way. This is a horrible thing that happens in this passage, right? The husband and wife, their marriage is crumbling, they're frustrated, they thought all these great Christian things were going to happen, that God was going to use them, And then they choose this woman, this slave girl in their household, and they abuse her, is what they do, right? Because they don't know what to do with their own lives. And she's had it, right? She saw that she had conceived, and she looked with contempt on Sarah. She's like looking at Sarah and says, this is literally what's happening. I gave your husband what you could never give him. That's literally what's happening in the passage, right? And her spite towards Sarah blows, Sarah blows up and she runs off, right? Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. 
And what I want you to see is Hagar is a real victim here. She's a real victim to real abuse. But here's the problem. Here's the frustrating thing. She's also not clean in this either. Right? She responds by running away. She grows angry. She embraces her victimhood and she detaches. And maybe this is you. Maybe you're the real victim of real abuse. A victim in your family, in relationships. Maybe it's in the church. And you feel that your victimhood has given you the right to two things. Giving you the right to be angry and the right to detach. You get to run away. And you see that disintegrates relationships as well. All of this is breaking down relationships. In all three of these characters, we see paths of how relationships disintegrate, how we become less human when we stop trusting God's goodness and we try to mimic and manufacture things that He can only give. Right? So here's the application point before we get to the final point. <clears throat> You're at Stanford and nobody else is telling you this, so it's not cool to tell you this. You can't fix it. You don't have the capacity to. Yeah, you got into Stanford. Yeah, whatever that means. In a good way, I think the older you get and notice from the juniors and seniors, you're actually less and less impressed by your Stanford um, uh, resume, and that's probably a good, healthy, mature thing. But here's the point tonight. You can't fix it. You can put a Band-Aid on it for a while. You can fake it for a while, but you can't mimic the blessings or the promises of God. Your facsimile won't work, and we keep thinking it will, but it never has and it never will. My little nephew loves Bob the Builder. Y'all, do y'all know the Bob the Builder motto? Can we fix it? Yes, we can. That's good audience participation for Bob the Builder in the middle of a kind of intense sermon. Um, no. The motto of the Christian is, can we fix it? No, we can't. We've tried a lot, but Jesus can, and he does it in a way that seems like foolishness to the world, but ultimately it's the only way that anything can really be fixed. So here's the solution. We see the solution to our disappointment, to our inability to fix things and God's dealings with Hagar, and three things stand out. First thing is this. Hagar flees, verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and said, Hagar, um, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? The first thing we see is this, and this is what you guys see. This is how God deals with it. First, he's the God who comes after us. The angel of the Lord is a theophany, a representation of God. In her distress, he goes out, he finds her. And this is what's really interesting. He addresses her by name. Now, this is one of those things we wouldn't pick up on, but that actually says a lot right there. Nowhere in ancient Near Eastern literature from this time period do you ever see a deity address a woman by name. This actually reveals a lot about kind of the way genders were thought of at that point in time. Even Sarah doesn't address Hagar by name to her face. What's being depicted here, what's being very clearly shown is this. It's a picture of intimacy and respect and care, that God's coming down and pursuing her and calling her name in an intimate way and calls her to return. And the same God that comes for Hagar comes in the form of the servant Jesus. He comes into this world. He enters into our situation. He enters into our pains and our temptations and our struggles. But what Paul tells us, though being God actually sets aside his glory. And Christianity, this is one of the main distinctives, this is the distinctive of Christianity from every other religion. It's the only one where the deity comes into and suffers alongside 
His people and for His people. In your distress, in your disappointment, in your confusion about life, remember this is the God who comes. This is the God who came in Jesus. And when He came, His suffering was not just His beating and it wasn't just His crucifixion. His suffering was every day here. Jesus was on the throne in heaven. Every day here was horrible for Him. This existence, when He walked around on this earth, all of that was suffering for Him. He's the God who comes. But this is also what happens. He's the God who hears and sees. The angel calls Hagar to return and be with God's people. And he tells her why in verse 11. You're pregnant, you shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. Right? Verse 13, she called him, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you're a God of seeing. She said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well is called, actually, the place where God sees. The Lord has heard your affliction. The Lord sees. The verb in verse 13 and 14, to see and to look, is over and over again. It's the writer telling us, do you see that the Lord sees your affliction? He's heard. He sees. He knows everything past, present, and future, hidden and open. He's not like us that looks out only on the outward, only seeing the present, vaguely kind of aware of the past, only seeing the appearance of things on the outside. He's God. He knows past. He knows present. He knows future. And He looks on the heart of man. He doesn't just see the external appearance. And He's a God of care for His people. And this is what it means. It means that these circumstances in your life, whatever they are, whenever they are, they are a part of His plan for you. He knows, and this is His care for you, no matter how difficult they are. And you might be wondering, all right, well, this place where I'm frustrated, where I can't wait anymore, why? Why this stuff? Why are these hard circumstances? There's a song John Newton wrote, um, I asked the Lord that I might grow. And I'll just read the first verse. John Newton's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, says this, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love in every grace, more His salvation know, and seek more earnestly His face. He taught me to pray this prayer, and He, tr- and he I trust to answer the prayer, but it has been in such a way that it drove me to despair. Because what I hoped was that in some favored hour, at once He'd answer my request, and by His love's constraining power, He would subdue my sins and give me rest. So here He is, I ask the Lord that I would grow, right? God told me to pray this way. And I hoped that he'd grant it, and I would find rest. But instead, verse 4, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, let the powers, angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, even more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs that I had schemed, and he cast out my feelings and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue your worm to death? It's in this way, the Lord replied, that I answer the prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your earthly schemes of joy so that you would find your all in me. What John Newton sings about here and what Abram's undergoing here demonstrates this point. 
God's grace and his glory and his faithfulness are magnified in the most extreme circumstances. What if he had told Abram when he was 25, Abraham, when you're 31, you're going to have a son, and through your son, I'm going to bless the world, right? Wouldn't be very impressive. What if years ahead, what if he said, Abram, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless the world through you, but you're going to have to wait. And he waits until Abram's 90. Do you see how that magnifies God's faithfulness? Do you see how it actually gives Abram more faith once it happens? That he sees, this is the kind of God I serve. He's not the God that gives me a child when I'm 31. Anybody can do that. This is the God who says, watch this. I'm going to wait until you're 90 and your wife is 90. Then I'm going to fulfill my promise. Right? Which would give you stronger faith? God carrying you through easy circumstances or God carrying you through difficult circumstances? Seeing that He's faithful when everything's right in your life or seeing that He's faithful and loves you when everything's difficult? Right? Close briefly with some applications. Direct ones. I don't normally do this. The first one is this. The first application is this. Stop. Stop thinking that God's fickle, that He's tricky, that He's inconsistent, that He feels differently about you today than He did yesterday. That He's out of control of these circumstances, but He was in control when everything was right in your life. In the midst of all your circumstances, good and bad, He's constant, He's sovereign, He's good. If you've trusted in Jesus, you're His. He who began a good work in you is bringing it to completion. He's not tricking you, He hasn't changed His mind about you. Stop trying to fulfill with your own hands the promises that God's made to you. God made the promises. God fulfills the promises. So stop. And here's one way to do it. Here's one way to stop. Practical exercise. When you're appraising, meditating, reflecting, talking about your spiritual life, your psychological life, your emotional well-being, whatever it is, when you contemplate the solutions to the frustrations of those areas in your life that are driving you crazy... Stop using the first person singular this way for a week. Just try it. Stop thinking in your own mind, I need to. I should. I've got to, right? I ought to. I'm not saying it's inappropriate. You need to do that sometime. But for one week, start to think this. I need Jesus to forgive me. I need Jesus to change me. Only Jesus can fix this. Only Jesus can help me. Only Jesus can save me. Jesus can convict me. Jesus have mercy on me. Make him the actor in your thought life instead of yourself, just for one week. Stop trying to get for yourself what only He can give you. Secondly, look up. Look up to the God who sees. He sees it all, He knows what's best, and He's giving you what's best. When you look at the circumstances around you and you're frustrated, you need to know that you have a very limited perspective. We all do. We all know so very little. Right? He sees and He knows it all. So fix your eyes on Him. This is what the psalmist says. I look, uh, I lift my eyes up to the hills from where my help comes. It comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The psalmist is saying, the one who made heaven and earth, He's the one I look at because He sees it all. And I'm going to trust His perspective on reality because I see so very little. Right? You might have done this trust exercise before I've done it. Camps, meetings, stuff like that, where you blindfold one person and then a person who's not blindfolded leads you through an obstacle course. You have seen this or done something like this, right? The point of the game is to de- demonstrate the importance of trust, right? But more so than that, the importance of the game 
is to see that you need to trust someone who sees more than you. If someone sees more than you, then instead of trying to read the circumstances around you by your limited abilities and your limited perspective, what the key to getting through the obstacle course is what? Is actually to put your focus on them. Right? And follow them. Success comes in the game when all of your attention is not fixed on your circumstances all the way around you all the time and how you manipulate them, but actually when all your attention is actually focused on the person who sees. Right? Look at the one who sees. Get your cues from him. Trust him, follow him. So stop trying to do it on your own. Look up to the one who sees. And here's the last one. Look forward. I'm guessing at Stanford, this might be a bad guess, that we don't have a lot of Joel Osteen readers here. Um, but the title of his kind of biggest book, he's a health and wealth preacher if you're familiar with him. Um, the title of his most famous book is Your Best Life Now. That's the saddest title ever by someone claiming to be a Christian. It really is. Don't just look up, look forward. If the good moments in this life are the best that there is, that's pathetic. Then this Christian thing is a ripoff. Because life's hard, right? Don't just look up, also look forward to the resurrection. Make a practice of reading just the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation. If we don't make a regular practice of looking forward to the resurrection, then life's going to kill us because we can't fix it. We've got to look forward. Um, I've also done a compass course. If you've ever done a compass course, when you get your bearings for what you're supposed to do, this is what you do. You're supposed to travel at so many degrees, so you get your bearings, and what you do is you pick out a landmark on the distant horizon. And you realize that tree's at the degrees I need to walk to or the hill's at the degrees I need to walk to. I'm going to walk towards that hill. I'm going to walk towards that tree. What you don't do is you don't set your compass and then walk this way. That's how people get lost. That's how everybody fails on these compass courses. The way you get to the place where you're supposed to be right here is by looking way out ahead of creating a landmark in your mind that says that's the point, those are the degrees, and I'm going to walk towards that mountain. And that's actually how you navigate everything in between. It's about looking way ahead. If you focus on your immediate surroundings, you're never going to get there. Stop, look up, and look forward. Here's personal uncomfortable confession of time, right? This is just the reality. I'm a young parent. My children are seven and five. I've already done irreparable harm to them. They've taken on traits of my personality that I hate and they're going to be theirs the rest of their life. I haven't always disciplined them well. I've disciplined them out of anger sometimes, and I haven't disciplined them because it's too hard to sometimes. I've avoided the work of disciplining. I haven't loved my wife well. I've been selfish in a lot of different ways. I've related to her. And I'm, and I'm going to try to fix that, and I've been trying to fix that, but the reality is the harm, the damage that I've done is irreparable. I'm trying to be a better pastor, but I'm not. I'm going to keep working at it. But I'm going to be just deeply dissatisfied with who I am as a pastor. I'm frustrated with who I am as a preacher. I really think I'm funnier than y'all think I am, and that just kills me. And I even use that to get cheap laughs, and that's pathetic. But I just can't fix it. I'm only 33 years old. I've tried really hard, and I can't fix it. The hardest thing in the world is the fact that I've given so much of it already to my children, and I can't fix them either. It's not going to change. It'll change a little bit. There's a little bit of healing that takes place in this life. I don't want to negate that. Praise Jesus for that. 
but it's not going to get fixed in this life. You're not going to get to fix your body the way you want to. Did you know that? It's never going to get there, right? You're not going to get to fix your family the way you want to. You're not going to be able to fix your relationships the way you want to. As long as your focus is on fixing your immediate circumstances, be prepared for despair. And that's what I'm telling you. Stop for a moment. Look up to the God who sees. And also look forward to the resurrection and walk that way with that perspective. Deal with your immediate circumstances with your eyes fixed on that horizon. In the midst of your disappointment, stop, look up to the God who sees, and look forward to what He has for you. It's not going to be in your time. It's going to be frustrating because we're not going to like His timing, but His timing is good. Let's pray.